Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. What would you do if your estranged father passed away, leaving behind piles, boxes, binders full of Nazi-era documents related to the fate of your family's iconic cafe during and between the world wars. We'll go on that real life journey of discovery with today's guest, but first, hello history lovers and welcome. I am your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio, and a special tip of the hat to everybody watching today's time travel adventure via our YouTube and Rumble channels. Please remember, you can visit me at historyauthor.com and you can find me across social media platforms. Remember, you can also read my columns in the Washington Times to get my analysis of current events through the lens of history. In this episode, our time machine travels back to those interwar years to meet a Jewish family rocked by the turmoil of Austria-Hungary collapsing and then Germany coming out on the losing side and giving birth the evil of Nazism. Our guide on this journey is Marielle Schindler, and she's the author of The Lost Cafe Schindler, One Family, Two Wars, and The Search for Truth. After her father Kurt's death, Marielle was left to confront their broken relationship and untangle the truth behind the tales he spun, stories of an extraordinary family tree featuring Franz Kafka, Oscar Schindler, the Jewish doctor who treated Adolf Hitler and his mother, as well as many others. Only one thing was for sure for Marielle, the cafe that the Nazis stole when her family was forced to flee. You can find our guest at MarielleSchindler.com or at Marielle Schindler on Twitter. And I hope you will go follow her there. By the way, the name is M-E-R-I-E-L. Okay, now that we've arrived, back in the early half of the 20th century, as Europe goes to war against itself, and Jewish citizens in particular pay a very high price. Let's join Mariel Schindler and sit down to talk about our family stories over coffee at The Lost Cafe Schindler. And here we are joined by Mariel Schindler. She's joining us from London, England to chat about her book, The Lost Cafe Schindler. One family, two wars, and the search for truth. Thank you so much for making the time to chat with the History Author Show. Thank you very much, Dean. It's a delight to be here. Well, I gushed a little bit before I began to click record, so I didn't have to be quite as professional. I could just say I love this book, and it's so such a special story. I thank you for writing it and sharing it with so many people out there who have lost their identity and when they either when they move or they've lost it through wars in the case here of the lost cafe schindler you're able to bring it back so i feel you do that for everybody who is out there who doesn't know where they came from and they lost it for instance my grandparents losing it in the Turkish invasion of Northern Cyprus, losing their farm, everything, all the ancestral land gone. And then my other set escaping the genocide in 1920 in Smyrna. So I'm cheering you on as I'm reading The Lost Cafe Schindler. And I'd like you to describe your moment where you do something that a lot of us wouldn't. A lot of us would just put away all of those boxes, not want to go through them. Just let's just end the pain right there. I'll close the door off to this sad thing. Your father has passed away. So take us back to that. When you and your sister walk into your father's home, 
how do you go about sorting, tackling this idea? There's all these documents, there's boxes, there's binders, folders, anonymous faces staring at you from photo albums. All of these things confront you in that moment of supreme grief that you have and conflict. So how do you go about starting this journey so that we can all go on that journey with you and enjoy it in the Lost Cafe Schindler? I think that's relatively easy to answer in the sense that I had a difficult relationship with my father and when he died, that relationship was unresolved. And so all of those photo albums we inherited with their, you know, as you say, unmarked photos with you know, anonymous people in them, all the paperwork I inherited from him, and there was stacks and stacks and stacks of it, as you say, um, it, it sat there unresolved like an undigested meal. And I'm a lawyer by training, and that meant I felt a need to create order out of chaos. And the first thing that drew me into the stories of my family, I think, were really the photo albums, as I simply didn't know who the people were. I knew some of them had been lost in the Holocaust, and I wanted to find out who they were and what their and honor their stories, I suppose. And it was through the photos I then started to look at the documents and then started on a whole journey of unraveling of stories, which took me to Europe, took me to Austria, to Italy, to Slovenia, um, Poland, you know, a whole bunch of places that I had been to maybe on holiday, but not otherwise. And I think um, it was partially walking those streets, visiting the cemeteries that drew me in to actually write down the story because I thought these were stories that were important to write down. Initially, I was actually just writing it down for my kids. And the more I wrote and the more I spoke to people about it, about what I was doing at the weekend and, and, and in holidays, they started to say, you've got to publish this. This is really interesting. So I was kind of an accidental author in that I, I didn't really set out to write a book, but that sort of, but ended up writing one um, sort of almost despite myself. A lot of us do think that our family drama would make a compelling book, but you draw on such rich source material and the journey, for instance, we'll get to your grandfather in, in a second, but the places that you go are not the same places that we have traveled. There's not the standard, this is a World War II story, so this is where you go. We have to have a scene in Paris. Those are the things that, that everybody shines a spotlight on. So I really like that you're traveling, you're taking me to a place, it's a, it's a lost country, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So as you are an attorney by trade, which you just said, at what point do you realize, is, is it just those people speaking to you and telling you, hey, I'd like to read it, can I see what you're, what you're working on? And that helped you transition from this is more than just me putting my relationship with my father and my life, my heritage in perspective. When when does that happen? When you say, well, maybe I'll, let's see, I'll talk to somebody in publishing instead of just my next door neighbor or my friends and see if they think there's something sellable here. I was encouraged by a number of people. Uh, I went on a writing course. I was a trustee of a writing charity and I went on one of their writing courses as I felt I ought to because I was a trustee. and. Uh, as preparation for that week, I had to produce 3000 words. And that was the first time I wrote about this story. And I was quite nervous walking into that first sort of tutorial. Um, 
because I wasn't, I didn't really know what to expect. And I hadn't really been to a tutorial for around 30 years. I sat down and he looked at me really seriously, the tutor. And he just, he turned the pages of what I'd sent in. And I felt like some, you know, kid first year, first year college, you know, that I was going to get a C minus or something from the tutor. <laughs> and he looked at me, took off his glasses and just said, you know, this is completely commercial, don't you? And I was, I was like, what do you mean commercial? <laughs> I've, I've just written it for this, this, this event, you know, this, this week. He said, no, no, this, this will sell. This is publishable. And it was the first time anyone had any, you know, looked at my, I mean, I'm a, I'm a lawyer. I write, I, I write for, for a living in many ways for my clients, but it was the first time I'd ever written anything else like that since college, I suppose. And, um, and I was quite shocked by that. And then I was very lucky. I found an agent really easily who loved the story. My agent sold it really quickly. So I, I was I was just in the right place at the right time at various points of, of, of the story. Um, and I, I that that I was just incredibly lucky. I suppose I was very, very blessed. I love that you have that moment where he tells you it's commercial and I could sense you right away thought, wait, am I being insulted? Is that a negative thing? And then yeah. it turns out, wait, it's he, the person who's a professional agrees with it. It's great. To yeah, yeah. That no, I was, I had no idea what he meant when he said it. I absolutely. <laughs> <did>. <laughs> That's great. I, I just love that this book is one of those that takes on a life of its own. And then you trace back the genesis of it in many ways, certainly of the lost Cafe Schindler, the literal building to 100 years, 1922, your grandfather Hugo is a veteran of the brutal fighting in the southern front of the Great War. And again, that's one of those places that I was mentioning that you visit that you don't see in other books. You, you hear so much about the Western Front, the Eastern Front. They don't think about those of us, my ancestors, yours that were down there in the, in the Balkans and in the Southern and on those mountains, that mountainous fighting. The only time they ever talk about them is every now and then someone gets defrosted, some soldier, and washes down from from the glacier. So people ig ignore that. They they don't even realize how much fighting there was going on there, especially for Austria-Hungary. So what made it special, this place? That's 100 years ago. And he opens this Cafe Schindler in Innsbruck in Austria-Hungary. And it endures not just the Nazi occupation, not just the Great Depression, not just Soviet invasion, and then after the war occupation and the Cold War, but it lives in people's memory. And that is so special to me. This place, this cafe lives in people's memory where they say, that's still probably what they call it. We all have local places like that. If we're fortunate to live where we grew up and have affection for it, or people still say you could call it whatever you want, but we're always going to say it has to be the Lost Cafe Schindler. So how does it, how does it endure? What was special about this place that you bring us to the Lost Cafe Schindler that it endured here as an idea, even when it wasn't a building? I think it's fascinating because the, so the, the reason I tell the story as I do is that the cafe becomes an eyewitness to history, an eyewitness to every single historical event that happens in that provincial town and flows literally under its windows. Every parade, every demonstration, every fight happens below its windows. So it becomes this extraordinary eyewitness to history. And you're right, it goes through this metamorphosis from when it's founded in 1922. So my grandfather, as you say, survives the First World War, 
an absolutely brutal war fought on vertical slopes and those are slopes that we've climbed as a family one of the things i i did to my family was every you know, several summer holidays were taken up in marching up these mountains because i wanted to understand what it was like we weren't carrying 30 kilo packs we were carrying light day packs and in you know but so we had but we had some sense of what it must have been like and and your your, your question is interesting because why did it endure i think when my grandfather returned from the First World War, he returned to a country that was broken. It had been dismembered. We all know about the Treaty of Versailles in Germany, but this was the Treaty of Saint-Germain-en-Laye, which was essentially the equivalent treaty for the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So the empire had been dismembered and broken up, and he returned to a place that was no longer part of an empire and was destitute. Um, people were starving, uh, there was incredible economic dislocation, and he did something that was almost frivolous. He, he loved his town, and he, almost as a sort of offering, as a present to his town, he opened this extraordinary cafe that was not just a place where you went for lunch, it was a place that had live music, a place that you could go and dance. It was one of the first places in Western Austria you heard jazz. And my grandfather loved music. And so you always had live music there. So you had a combination of live music, dancing, really good coffee, really good cake and other meals and his own homebrewed liqueurs and schnapps. So you created an environment that was a really nice environment to go, a sort of third space. We've got very much this, we've got used to this idea of a third space, of a cafe that's a good place to go. And cafes have a long tradition of being a place outside the home that is not the workplace and not home, but a place to meet people, a place to debate, a place to have fun, maybe a place for a secret meeting with a lover. You know, all this, all this is going on in the cafe. And so when I went to school in Austria, I was, I was taken from London by my father uh, and, and sort of plonked into an, an Austrian convent school when I was 15. And at that point, the cafe no longer existed, but it didn't matter because when I said my name to the parents of my friends or the grandparents of my friends, they all said, ah, oh, the cafe Schindler, I used to dance all night there. So it really did. It was the, the place to go. It was the central hub, the social hub, of, if you like, of Innsbruck. And it was special. So if you go back to, to Matthew 22, it, it was in my grandfather's hands up until Matthew 38. My grandfather was Jewish. The Nazis roll into Innsbruck. And one of the first things they do is they take the cafe off him and they force him to sell it to a leading Nazi. Thank goodness that leading Nazi was also skilled in hospitality because he kept it going. He renamed it uh, Cafe Hebel and it then became a Nazi officer's drinking club. And there, you know, there was no longer any jazz, of course, the Nazis did not like jazz. It was degenerate music as far as they were concerned. So they had their own drinking songs and their own sort of games that they played there. And for seven years, it was a Nazi hangout. So officers on leave went there, officers passing through, and, and Innsbruck was a very important um, sort of crossroads, east-west, north-south crossroads, so lots of people passed through Innsbruck, including Hitler himself on a number of occasions, although I don't know whether he went to the cafe, but he might have done. And then after the war, the Nazis all scarpered, they all went into hiding, all were arrested, um, a lot of them went into hiding, 
and it was handed back to my grandfather. So he, he returned. He was one of the very, very few um, Jews who returned to Austria, let alone to this part of Austria. And the cafe had been bomb damaged. He raised it out of the rubble and he got it going again. And he once again threw open the doors to his beloved, you know, Innsbruck population, despite the fact that that, you know, many of those, you know, many of those people in Innsbruck had been Nazis and had turned on him. But he he sort of forgave that um, in a quite an extraordinary way. Um, sadly, he didn't live very long and he died in 1952 um, of a stroke. And um, my father then inherited the cafe with his cousin. My father was a terrible businessman. He fell out with everyone and the cafe was then sold um, a few years later. Um, it limped on with the name Cafe Schindler for a little bit, but then it closed and it was gone. And as I said, when I returned, when I went to school in, in, in Austria in the in the late 70s, early 80s, it wasn't there, but it, it was in people's minds. And then 10 years ago, um, a young restaurateur who knew nothing about the cafe's history at all um, wanted to open a restaurant in the exact same building. And it didn't matter where he went, no matter, you know, he asked the planning officers, he asked the licensing officers, he asked his girlfriend's family what he should call it. And they all said, Cafe Schindler. It's no question, it's got to be called Cafe Schindler. He had no idea who we were. And so what he did was he went to the local archives, looked us up and realised he had already made history. So he decked it out in the 1930s Art Deco style. And it's been hugely successful. Now, I don't have shares in it. Um, but my name's on the door and I love the fact that it is the only previously Jewish owned business that is still going 100 years later. So this year it celebrates its 100th anniversary. And I'm I'm really proud of that. I'm proud of the fact that my grandfather's endeavor is still going. You may not have stock, but you certainly have a stake in it. And to me, when you say it's the only Jewish owned business that from that era that is still operating today and when you talked about your grandfather, he wanted to give a gift to the people there. That brings to life for me. And it's something I'm sure I'll mention in other interviews and that will stick with me as I go forward in, in my own life and look back that we say, well, people consider themselves German, people consider themselves Austrian, even if they were of Jewish faith. And I shouldn't even say even if, because that, that sets them apart. But this is the way that people speak about it. Often in history, they say, well, they consider themselves German and, and Austrian, and they were, they were part of their country. They were citizens. They fought in the war. Here, your grandfather's fighting in the war for Austria-Hungary. And so that brings that to life. He wanted to do this for them, to go back there. He didn't just go and he could have sailed for America or Australia or gone to Britain and left them all behind. But that that shows the care that he has and and it, the people reciprocated, which is a beautiful thing. I'm sure some of those people in town were also sympathetic with the Nazis. And yet he manages to transcend that with something as simple as a cafe that I feel like I'm insulting it now, but I don't mean simple in a negative way because no, no, I'm affectionate no. for the place. I've never even been there. <laughs> and then you go, you go over after this fate is told here in the Lost Cafe Schindler. It becomes part of that history idea where the Austrian Jews are very much overlooked. We focus all on Germany. And so your dad starts telling you, don't talk about it. Just keep quiet, be, be a nice, quiet Nice, quiet Jewish girl, something that they tell Trisha Posner, a teacher told her, we're going to talk about Gerald later, get a question from him. 
But well, why don't you just be quiet? Just don't talk about being Jewish. Be a quiet, nice Jewish girl. She vowed that she wouldn't be that and that she would speak up and she wasn't going to let people bully her because she was Jewish and just pretend not to be. And so this is a taboo that you have from your father. And then Austria itself worked so hard to move beyond being known as the birthplace of Hitler. They don't they don't want to talk about what they did or any kind of being Kurt Waldheim complicit with the Nazi regime. So. I wonder how that taboo and how Austria did work so hard to erase it and move beyond the Second World War, complicate your efforts to reconstruct your family history when you go back there and you want to ask people about the Lost Cafe Schindler and what happened to some of your relatives and the other Jewish population there. How did that complicate your efforts to write the book and fill in some of those blanks that you had to document or debunk all these often crazy stories your father had told you? I think that's it's an interesting question. I I don't think I could have written this book 20 years ago. First of all, my father was alive, so that definitely wouldn't have worked. But for other more cultural historical reasons, I think. Um, I, I think that so let's deal with the family fir first and then the Austria bit. So, yes, my father did say never tell anyone you're Jewish. And for him, being Jewish was clearly dangerous. He was a child of the Holocaust. He escaped like his like his parents did, my grandparents did. They came to London. They were very, very lucky. 65,000 Austrian Jews did not make it out, including you know, members of my family. Um, so he was lucky, but he obviously perceived being Jewish as being as, as, as dangerous. And so he my family were archer similists they they were not they were not remotely observant um they ran a cafe it was clearly open on fridays and saturdays for starters and yet of course assimilation did them no good whatsoever they were just as jewish as an observant family next door and they were just as likely to get beaten up or gassed by the nazis so you know, it's interesting. I mean, my father engaged in a quite extreme form of assimilation, which I think in modern day parlance is called passing. You know, he would, if he possibly could, have always passed as a Gentile, as a non-Jew. And he made sure that we tried to do that, too, as children. So that's the sort of family side of it and quite, quite tricky, I think. Um, now, moving moving into the more, perhaps the more interesting historical context for Austria. So you're absolutely right, Dean. I mean, after the Second World War, the Austrians engaged in, in a quite extreme form of denial, in the sense that when they when they were told about the camps, their reaction was by and large, it was pretty hard for us too. And yeah, war is war is terrible, war is horrible. And people starved and, and got bombed and died. But obviously, they weren't the subject of a Holocaust. And they developed this narrative immediately after the Second World War, the Austrians, that they had been Hitler's first victim. Now, this, of course, is rather contradicted by the, you know, uh, joyous crowds who greet Hitler at every at every turn when he drives through Austria um, just after the Anschluss in, in, in 1938. Um, and they perpetrated this myth of being Hitler's first victim for a very, very long time. So when I was at school in Austria in, as I said, the late 1970s, early 80s, first of all, 
the, the second world war was dealt with very very briefly it was two pages right at the end of the history book now this was a history book that was used in the national curriculum throughout austria and the first couple of lines of these just two pages were very telling because they talked about the fact that concentration camps yes they existed but you should never forget they were invented by the british in the boer war and once you frame history and you are a history channel you know once you frame history for an entire generation of school kids in that way they go around thinking that concentration camps are okay because they were invented by the British or, you know, insofar as they weren't okay, they, the, the Germans were, and the Austrians were no worse than anyone else. So, you know, that sort of framing was very prevalent. That's not the only example, but that's the one that was most, most sort of adjacent to me, if you like, because it was in my history book as a kid. Um, but that has changed. And the generation of historians who were working, are working now in, in, in the archives and in the universities and who are writing the academic historians are a very different breed. And there has been a much, much greater acknowledgement of what happened. Um, and I think a taking of responsibility in the way that was unthinkable 15 years ago maybe so it, there's been a huge change and a lot of work done and i think whilst austria is by no means perfect um i think it is a, a long way a long way better than where it was um there are things that i would like to see changed um there is a memorial to the people who died in a camp just outside innsbruck which i think is completely inappropriate because it doesn't talk about Jews at all. It talks about patriots for no very good reason. Um, and um, it's a 1972 memorial. So you can see that's it's just hasn't caught up, basically. And that, I think, needs to change. Um, and, you know, to some extent, perhaps we need to move on from memorials and work at different ways of keeping these stories alive. And I think doing this, this podcast on this particular week, you know, after the invasion um, of, of Ukraine by the Russians, really bring some of these stories back to life because I think it, it is, you know, we do need to think about how how in particular refugees are dealt with in, in in the current day and how they were dealt with then, and that's one of the things that I hope my book does bring out. Definitely makes you reflect throughout the whole book about the things we believe in history and are told and to dig into it ourselves. The thing about the concentration camps, I just have to touch on that because they had those in the Cuban War, when the, the Spanish-American War comes later, and when the Spanish trying to put down that rebellion, they have what they call concentration camps. And I thought that even predated the Boer War, but certainly, and even, even when in the United States, we had internment camps for Japanese and Germans and Italians, other axes, keeping them in there, they called them that, that was a term. Then it becomes mass extermination, not just a place where you stick a bunch of people, which is still not good. Nobody wants to be shoved in one, but then it becomes intentionally to murder. And so that that's a real sleazy historical sleight of hand to blame on the British. But you, this is why you have to decide who's writing the history right and why to excuse it. And so that's something I, I definitely wanted to just touch on briefly there. 
but to, to go to the real part of the story to the the unique horror and evil of the holocaust that the jewish people suffered november 9th 1938 is kristallnacht the night of the broken glass that has all for, but passed from living memory now that's quite a while ago so you have a story here in the lost cafe schindler that as you said that this this building sees so much history through those windows and your your family story gives it to us here in the book he was beaten he's left for dead and all of these jewish owned businesses are smashed your father long claims to have witnessed it and i guess uses this to explain why he has this idea of going native and and trying to pass as gentile and denying his his heritage or hiding his heritage so how did you come to deal with that event and the fact that your father was an unreliable narrator and force your brain to as a lawyer find out what was what what is this witness to history these witnesses in these papers these documents what are they telling me what's true that i grew up believing for 50 years was true because somebody will, will often lie to you about a very tiny little thing that there seems to be no point to how did you go about digging through all of that so that you could fact check your father's stories with some of those documents and then bring us the true story here in the lost cafe schindler um you're absolutely right dina we grew up with the the, the family story which was that on kristallnacht during the november pogrom as it's often called now um kristallnacht is such a beautiful term for what was a real night of hideous violence um you know that that the story had always been that my father, age 13, had been in the flat um, when the Nazi thugs had essentially broken down the door, stormed in. They had picked up um, my father's toboggan, a classic Austrian toboggan, so beautiful wooden hoop toboggan with a, with a woven seat and metal runners to protect the wood from the snow. And they had picked up this toboggan and smashed it over my grandfather's head, who was standing there in a nightshirt with a candle holding, you know, holding the collar of his dog. And my father was told the story that after that, he'd stumbled back into the bedroom from the, from the hallway and that one of the Nazis had stamped on his face with a hobnail boot. So very vicious, horrible images you know, using a child's toboggan to beat someone up and, you know, really, really unpleasant, horrible violence and left my grandfather for dead. Now, I was curious about that story. I knew my father told it not just to us. Um, I came across a psychiatric report where he told the psychiatrist that he'd witnessed this. So this was something I hadn't just misremembered. Um, but there was one problem with this story. My father was, wasn't there. Uh, he was safely in London, and I and what what that whole story unravelled, because when I took the photo albums out, um, well, first of all, I, I got the witness statements from the from the from the archives from the criminal cases in 1947 brought against the thugs who'd, who'd beaten up my grandfather, and I got a hold of those witness statements because I was quite keen to hear my grandfather's voice. I assumed he he would have done a witness statement in support of the prosecution of these thugs. In fact, there was no witness statement from my grandfather, but there were witness statements from the thugs themselves. So I read all these statements they, when they arrived from the archives and 
I was really puzzled. They were all a bit confusing and a bit jumbled as if these people didn't quite remember what happened or pretended not to remember. Um, and yet what was really patently obvious is my father is not mentioned in them. And I combed through a whole bunch of witness statements thinking, well, he must be somewhere. This is really odd. Um, and then I look at the a couple of other documents and I realise my grandmother's in London. And I then take out a childhood photo album, it's a tiny little photo album, which was my father's photo album. And it's very clearly his album because he talks about the first day with mummy in London. And it's marked September 1938 in pencil. And so it's very clear he was in London. And that is backed up by a further piece of evidence which came out of another archive where my father, after the war, ends up in a displaced person's camp back in Austria when he returns to Austria. And he says to the official who was writing a report on him that he left for England in September 38. So together, the photo album, the witness statements and this displaced person's camp thing make it very, very clear that he wasn't there. Um, I was horrified. I was really, really horrified that he had pretended to be there. Where I got to in my thinking about it now, having reflected quite a lot on it, is that he may have come to, he may have told the story that he was there or told the story so often that he came to believe he was there. And it served a purpose for him when he needed to get, you know, make a psychiatrist feel sorry for him in Austria or for a court case or, you know, it served a purpose for him. And maybe he didn't, maybe he felt it didn't matter whether he was there or not. Maybe he felt that the events were so horrendous that, you know, telling them as a first-hand event, first-hand witness account or a second-hand witness account, it didn't really make much odds. The events were horrible. Maybe that's what he was doing. And I think he came to believe that he was there. I think, I don't think he set out deliberately to lie to us as children. I think by that point in time, so, you know, 40 years after the war, 50 years after the war, he, he probably came to believe he was there, but he clearly wasn't. Such a vivid description that you gave and that he gave and developed that this happens sometimes. I have a friend who's my age and Boy, in his mid twenties, he'd be telling stories of my stories that he he wasn't even there for, and he would tell them as if he had been there. So some people just absorb it like that. So, and I think that's part of the story or part of the experience you get in the Lost Cafe Schindler, where you're you certainly don't come across as this is an angry daughter who is trying to settle scores. So you're trying to go on a journey of understanding, and that that helps all of us to go through this in our own past, because we may find that treasure trove of documents and photos and not know and want to just throw them out. And they're significant. It's part of who you are, whoever you are. We may not all like everyone in our families. We may be estranged from our parents sometimes or frustrated with them, but we can go through those shared experiences and maybe understand them a little, come to an understanding as you do here in the Lost Cafe Schindler. So I, I wanted to ask you briefly on that score to consider if, somebody does find that box and you you could tell them how you felt reconstructing your family history but what do you want to tell people who are your readers who say 
I have a ton, I have 20 boxes of my father's stuff, my mother's bags. I never open them because I, I just can't emotionally. Tell them the positive side of that in your experience that you come out on the other side and you are glad you went into those because you've not only helped yourself, but you've shared a great story with readers and helped other people. Why should people in your experience open those boxes and go on that journey into their family history? I think it's not for everyone to do this. I did it because I felt a need to understand who was in the photos and then a need to bring some order into the chaos that was my father's life. My father had a terribly chaotic life and and we as children had a very chaotic life. So I did feel the need to bring order there. If listeners out there have that box of, of photos and, and documents, I think it's a very personal decision whether you decide to try and put them in order. I think what for me was also important is I've got three children and I realized that if I didn't do this, no one else would. So, you know, when I'm no longer here, these documents would be there and they would weigh on my children. Whereas I have created a narrative, which I hope I believe is an entirely truthful narrative. There's nothing that's made up in the book mm. and which they're now really proud of. So, you know, they go to the bookshops and they send me, you know, selfies of themselves standing next to the book in bookshops and, and their friends have taken to do this, doing this as well. I think it's a very odd occupation. I think they ought to get out more and go dancing or something. But you know, it's been a modern really, kids, right? <laughs> that's the modern way that they show that they've been there and you wonder what your grandfather would have thought of it right he how strange to think your grandfather would be the one telling you to go out and dance and you're yeah, sitting there with yeah. the selfie stick <laughs> um, so i think it's not for everyone um dean if i'm honest i'm not a great um proselytizer if you like for necessarily doing it but i think it also it brings a lot of healing and a lot of um perspective by doing it so if you had a troubled relationship with someone, um, I mean, you know, it's, it's as good as therapy, basically, you know, you, you, you know, to sit down and write down what happened and try and make sense of it and weigh the evidence in a, in a fair way that is grounded in, in the facts, in the historical context, in the artifacts that you have, um, I think it's quite a healing thing to do, particularly if you've had a difficult relationship with someone who's now no longer here. You're enjoying my conversation with Marielle Schindler. She's the author of The Lost Cafe Schindler, One Family, Two Wars, and The Search for Truth. Visit her at MarielleSchindler.com or at Marielle Schindler on Twitter. You can find her on LinkedIn as well. Attorney and investigative journalist Gerald Posner, who I've interviewed about three of his books, those are God's Bankers, A History of Money and Power at the Vatican, Pharma, Greed, Lies, and the Poisoning of America, and Case Closed, the Harvey Oswald and the Assassination of JFK. Writes of the book, The Lost Cafe Schindler seamlessly melds two riveting histories, the tumultuous story of Jewish life in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the gripping tale of a remarkable family. Marielle Schindler's account is a powerful personal journey of discovery. This extremely well-researched and beautifully written story is one that will linger long after the last page. 
Marielle, Gerald was nice enough to record a video question for you. So why don't I play that for you and then we can get your reaction on the other side. Marielle, you've done such an incredible job uh, in Cafe Schindler, a combination of research and history and personal memoir from your family. And I just wonder how you feel today uh, with the rise again in anti-Semitism. Uh, the 2021 was a record setting year in many countries for violence against uh, Jewish communities and also the increasing rise in Holocaust revisionism and Holocaust denial. How you feel and why do you think that is happening in 2022? Thank you. So anti-Semitism is a, well, it's often said to be one of the oldest forms of hatred. And I've spent a, an awfully long time trying to puzzle out why in my particular family's context, uh, anti-Semitism happened. And just to understand, I mean, my family were in a provincial town in Western Austria. They were completely assimilated. Um, they went about their business and they brought joy to the local townspeople by providing them with a venue where they could go dancing, go drinking, and eat wonderful cake. I mean, there was really nothing very objectionable about my family. And yet, and yet, they got beaten up, they got dispossessed, and they had to flee the country for their lives. And one of the odd things about anti-Semitism in that particular area is that I think it's very formed by the geographic location. So we're talking historically, you know, it, it, this is a small town surrounded by mountains. So there was a sense that anyone who was other, who was different, might be a target, I suspect. And I also think the Catholic Church had a huge amount to do with it, um, in the sense that the majority of people were Catholics, the vast majority, and the Catholic Church allowed um, issues such as blood libel to flourish in the area. Um, there were celebrations every year of a local blood libel, a completely fictional blood libel event uh, just outside Innsbruck. And there were parades and, you know, this sort of stuff went on well into the 1980s in Austria. So there's a very particular historical context, the anti-Semitism in Innsbruck. Um, despite the fact that what is so peculiar about the anti-Semitism in Innsbruck is that there were hardly any Jews there. So there were less than 500 Jews uh, at the start of the, uh, of the Second World War. So an extraordinarily small number, mostly incredibly assimilated, but a context which is uh, an enclosed context because it's mountainous and a very deeply Catholic, deeply rural, deeply conservative context. So that's the sort of the historical context there. Now, I'm not sure, I think it's probably above my pay grade to say why anti-Semitism has been on the increase. I think that our, in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, it was intellectually, culturally, socially, completely unacceptable to be openly anti-Semitic. We, you know, as we, we, you know, we just finished an era where you know, six million Jews have died in camps in horrific circumstances. And I think 
it was simply not acceptable to be openly anti-Semitic now. As that generation has of perpetrators and victims is now largely no longer with us, it has become socially a bit more acceptable to be anti-Semitic again. But it's much it's much more subtle a lot of the time. You know, it takes the form not of, you know, enclosed geographic anti-Semitism or blood libel or Catholic versus Jewish anti-Semitism or Christ's layer type religious anti-Semitism or even the sort of racial anti-Semitism the Nazis engaged in. It is much, much more subtle now. It is around things like network and cabals of powerful Jews. There's this sense when you hear anti-Semitic comments, they are, I think, almost invariably linked to um, this sense that there is a cabal of of powerful Jewish forces who are pulling strings behind the scenes and that there's a network. So it's very different to the anti-Semitism that has gone on previously in previous generations as sort of the, the, the religious um, and the racial anti-Semitism. This is much more about network and shadowy, shadowy fears about Jews. The rise of it is, well, partially linked, I suppose, to populism. Um, partially linked in some ways to sometimes people needing a story, needing a, needing a, they have a desire for an explanation and sometimes anti-Semitism fits the bill for them. The foolishness would be, let's say somebody doesn't pick up this book because they think, well, that, that's not my story. I don't, I don't want to read a Jewish story, quote unquote. They're missing out on a, on a fantastic book that for me, I read any book and I can always find something about myself, my own history to identify with, or you learn something from another culture and another people. I did want to ask you something that's on the lighter note because you mentioned it, and that is you include recipes. And taste is one of the five senses when you write fiction. They always tell you, touch all those senses. And in nonfiction, it's very easy to just forget it, to leave it aside because we think of it, I think, as more cerebral, right? We can't go to the Lost Cafe Schindler in the 20s, but we can taste some, some of this thanks to you including it in your book. And I wanted to ask why you thought that was important to include. And just as a publishing question, did anybody give you pushback and say that doesn't really belong in a nonfiction book for you to have recipes? My publishers were my, my literary agent, my editor and generally my publishers were totally against including recipes. And they thought it would confuse booksellers because they wouldn't know whether to put it in the cookery section or in the history section or in the memoir section. And for me, my original project was very much around thinking that I was going to write up the family history, include the photos and include recipes. So that was my original project like for the kids. And in the end, I managed to smuggle the recipes into the back of the book. There's, uh, I think, only five or six of them. Um, and the reason I thought it was important was this is about a cafe. This is just another way of framing the story of that of that era. And for people to be able to go and make an apple strudel or make a sacha torta or a linza torta for me was a really positive outcome. And I had loads of readers send me pictures of the, the, the strudel that they'd just taken out of the oven or the sacha torta that they were eating, um, which I thought was just wonderful. And it's probably the only Holocaust story that has recipes in it. Um, but 
recipes are really important. As you say, it's the fifth sense. And one of the things that I thought was really moving, I, I didn't actually put it in the book in the end, but in Teletzin, in Theresienstadt, the women in Theresienstadt, despite being on the verge of starvation, wrote a recipe book. And that tells you so much about people wanting to preserve their culture, um, to hold things together. Um, because what do you do when you're providing for your family, even in hugely difficult circumstances, you try and provide food for them. And so for me, it's sort of, it's sort of redolent a little bit of that. Yes, of a fun place where you could listen to music and, and eat nice cake, but there's also more to it than that. I realized as we were speaking that I would have to take down my my cookbook, Regional Greek Cooking, which I'm, I'm gonna have to send you a copy of because maybe you could enjoy some of the Greek recipes out of here. My, my mom was born in London, by the way, so I have a little connection there, but yeah. The recipes, when I was able to get my recipes from my grandparents and my two grandfathers I never even met and put them in this book, it's so special and so moving. And you see it. I don't even know how to describe it. Your hands are moving the same way theirs did. You're doing the same ingredients. You're tasting the taste. It's as if they're feeding you from that cafe back for you 100 years ago. Just so wonderful. Such a wonderful way to end the book. Yeah, there is something about um food being passed down and recipes knowledge being passed down it also mirrors a little bit um this this idea of schnapps recipes and and liqueur recipes being passed down through my grand my great grandmother was uh, came from a jewish distilling family that had gone back generations of, there's at least two generations before her of distillers so i know that their recipes were passed down that formed the business, the kernel of the business in of my family in Innsbruck. And so I like the idea of recipes being passed down. And I did I worked really hard to try and find um, the liqueur recipes that my grandfather had used. And I tracked them down and they were up until about, I don't know, five years ago, they were still knocking around in a shop in Innsbruck and they had a clear out and they lost them, they, they disposed of them. So it's a shame because there were there were some original recipe books that I was trying to track down, but I didn't manage to get them in the end. Well, I'm so glad you insisted on it. It sounds like that was a little work convincing everybody at every stage of publishing because that does add something that is very unique to be able to pick up the book and see some recipes in it. You say, wait a minute, this book is more than just nonfiction. And, you should you should pick it up i could tell people to pick it up but i did want to close by asking you because this book does have this momentum of its own from the moment that you start writing down your ideas and going through those papers and never intending really to publish it so i'd like you to make your pitch not just to devout jewish readers not just people with that heritage that maybe have put it back in the rear view put it in put it in the closet and have forgotten about it let it fall away not just gentiles anybody who is out there who wants to read a good story and see some of the people that were in hidden corners of World War II, away from the big set piece battles and away from the big tragedies and all of the big names that we associate with the war. Why should they pick up this book, regardless of their background, enjoy your family story, but also be enriched by it all the way through that final page, as Gerald Posner said? Oh, thank you, Dean. I mean, I think the story has a degree of universal, universality to it. I think that 
it's it's a very relatable family they're just an ordinary middle class jewish family living in a small town who run a cafe um and it tells the story of their life through the eyes of the cafe and it's also intertwined with a story we haven't actually touched on which was one of the most extraordinary discoveries of of my of my research which was that my father had always said that his um his his uncle was a Jewish doctor who treated Hitler as a youngster. And I'd never believed this, but in fact, it was true. So, you know, we we were an ordinary middle-class family who came, I suppose, into the orbit of some of the most terrifying people of the 20th century. And um, I I suppose it, 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 it's a different story from your standard, you know, Jews in Vienna story. It's, it's more relatable, it's, um, and it, I think it's it, it has a universality that perhaps some of the other stories don't have. Well, certainly nothing common about this story, nothing run of the mill about it. The Lost Cafe Schindler, Marielle Schindler, thank you so much for sharing it with me today, for going through all of those boxes. It wasn't easy, as you said, it's not something that's for everybody, but all of us that pick up a copy of The Lost Cafe Schindler can benefit from the fact that you did risk your heart really and open it up and say let me go through let me tell this story i'm so thankful to everybody who pushed you along the way for doing it and i will let you have the rest of your day because i'm going to go bake some strudel i think from the lost cafe schindler and get a little taste of it myself i wish you the best of luck with this very special book and really thank you for writing it and for your time today i hope you just have a great strudel yourself the next time you're looking to cook something thank you very much dean for having me on your show Again, the book is The Lost Cafe Schindler, One Family, Two Wars, and The Search for Truth. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the historyauthor.com page for this episode. By buying a book through us, you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine, humming like usual. Many thanks to Marielle Schindler for joining us today and for bringing order out of the chaos of her father's notes would have been so easy to throw all of those things away. Instead, she went through the hard work, the personal work, of digging into those files and providing us with a unique, thoroughly compelling view from inside Europe, during and between and after the World Wars. Please do visit her at MarielleSchindler.com or follow her at Marielle Schindler on Twitter. And you can find her at LinkedIn as well. If you enjoyed watching this conversation, please do subscribe at our YouTube and Rubble channels for future journeys in the Wayback Machine. As for my social media, you can find those all linked at historyauthor.com. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio or wherever you enjoyed this journey into yesterday. Until that next trip into the past together, on behalf of Marielle Schindler, Thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York.